Father, Son, and Spirit, Lord, we declare together on our feet and with our voices, Lord, that you are holy. And Lord, we recognize that you are more holy than we could possibly truly imagine. But Lord, songs like this remind us of the glorious truth that, Lord, that you are in your glory and that you are a God of salvation and that you call us to see who you are and you have said, be holy as I am holy. Lord, thank you for Jesus who makes that possible. In the glorious name of our holy God, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, uh, I think I have some guys that are come help me with some chairs that are here. And um, this morning, we're going to hear a story as part of the message. Um, usually, we tear straight into the Word of God and um, seek to expound it. And uh, this morning, I want to have a quiet time of worship and testimony through hearing what God has done in a man's life. Um, Saul Kess uh, from Cambodia is going to share with us this morning his experience in life and his experience of God's work in his life. Um, he today is serving um, through Southern Baptist work around the world, and uh, I'm going to let him tell you uh, a little bit about that. But I can tell you that in the last few months, I've come to know this brother and uh, had some meals with him and uh, just have come to dearly love and appreciate him. This morning, would you please welcome with me Saul Kess to be here. Saul, I'm going to let you have a seat right there, and I'm going to have a seat right here. And um, you've come to know our church family. You've been in worship with us for the last few months. And uh, your first Sunday, you texted me, and you said, Pastor Andrew, I am so grateful for um, the worship experience that we had at Sheridan Hills. And um, we are just excited that you're here today. Um, our church family needs to hear testimonies sometimes of how God has worked in our lives. So I just want you to tell your story, as you've told me before, and uh, as you have shared with others, we, we need that. Again, um, I, uh, I think it would be good for you to think back and remember everything you can, uh, from the imagery to the other things of Vietnam in that era that will help you understand now listen to this. Saul and I are the same age. So here we are, and, and I, the way I interpret um, that part of the world, um, I, didn't re I didn't remember living and growing up in that. I only remembered the stories later told. But that's a very different experience that you had. And uh, we want to hear your story. Good morning. My name is Saul. I met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to America and became Paul. <laughs> My friends like to call me Saul Paul, sound very biblical. And uh, in South Florida, I am known as Saul. Saul. That's, that's very new for me. I went to the doctor's office and uh, I was waiting for them to call my name. They call a guy's name Saul. I just sat there. <laughs> wait for Saul, you know, but they never call Saul, it's Saul, and then I learned that, yeah, that's me, because I'm the only guy in the room, so, and I like that, 
But uh, you said your name is Paul also, which is true. Yes. Is that right? Yes. My, when I first introduced myself to my wife, um, she said, can I see your driver's license? She wanted to know that I'm not a scam. <laughs> uh, so Saul Paul Kess, that's my name. Okay, to get to that, so I am from Cambodia. Get this right. Um, Cambodia is uh, sandwiched between uh, Thailand on the left and Vietnam on the right. A little bit above that is uh, uh, Laos. It's about the size of the state of Kansas, with about 15 million people in population. And uh, I came from a family of five. Uh, the oldest son in the middle there, that's me, about seven years old. And, uh, and so my father was a school director of a high school, and my mother was a housewife. And uh, my mother worked really hard uh, so that my father could be uh, doing his job as a school director there. And being a school director in Cambodia, probably one of the prestigious jobs that anyone could get. And if you have that job, you can support uh, 10 to 15 other family members uh, wow. comfortably. Wow. So, yes. And I also uh, uh, came from a Buddhist family. I look at the picture in the middle. Um, I believe that if I am good and I do all the good work, uh, being kind, that will secure me a place in heaven uh, automatically. And then to the left of that is the picture of me worshiping the spirit of my ancestors who passed away a long time ago. I would pray to them, asking them for protection as well as for prosperity in life. And to the very right picture there, uh, I also believe that there are souls and spirits and everything trees, rocks, mountains, rivers, and everything else you can name. So I worship pretty much everything that you can possibly name. And most of what I worship is uh, made by man, uh, designed by man, and was passed down to me. So I call out to them, I call out to their names for my own salvation, for my future, for my life to life, for my decision in life. Then uh, uh, in the midst of all of that, uh, my grandmother would tell me that above all that, there is a creator God, the most powerful God of everything else that you ever worship. So you can call to him. He's the ultimate supreme power in the universe. Except I did not know his name. So I kind of called him in any way that I can call um, so that I could communicate with him. And so that is very typical of most Cambodians, most people from that part of the world. They would have those three systems of belief in their mind and in their heart, from Buddhism in the center to an, uh, ancestor worship on the left, and then uh, really a pantheistic um, yes. view um, of everything else. They would, they would just pray to those things and offer sacrifices to those things. So if we go in a restaurant and there's a tray of food by the door, um, a full, beautiful meal there, that is an ancestor offering, is that correct? Yes, it is. Uh, it's there to uh, offer food, drink, whatever you can give to the spirits of your deceased ancestors. 
and hope that they would bless you and prosper you. If you yes. don't do that, your business would come to an end. Okay, so right down the road here at Sheridan Street, there was a new Asian restaurant, and me and some of the pastors went to visit it. And they had just opened two days earlier. I walked in the door, and I told the lady sitting next to her, I said, lady, there's right here, there's a meal that somebody forgot to put it away. I mean, that's what I said. I was like, no, no, look, right there. And she would not look at it. She would just look at me, and she goes, yes, I know, I know. And I said, well, no, it's right here. I mean, do you, do you, do and she goes, I know. And she goes, I know. I said, okay. Um, and I said, what is it there for? And she said, those who came before us. And I was like, you mean like this morning? No. I mean, you know, I didn't, I didn't know. I, I didn't know. You know, I dealt with Muslims. I didn't deal with, you know, the Eastern mystics. But that's what that was all about. That's what it was all about. Yeah. And to uh, let you know how uh, powerful that belief is, that belief system is in the lives of the people. Probably of all those three, um, it was tested during the communist regime that when the communists banned all practices of religion and people would be uh, executed, punishable by death, if you practice one of these religions, the very one on the left that people would still do, people would be risking their lives to feed the dead. And so that can tell you, they wouldn't do anything else. They wouldn't go to Buddhist temple, they wouldn't go worship any other objects and spirit trees, mountain rocks and all that, but they would sneak out and try to offer food to uh, the spirit of the dead. Mm. Yeah. So um, from there, in uh, 1970, uh, the war in Vietnam spilled into Cambodia. And uh, the uh, Cambodian communist, uh, the Marxist communist, uh, were mobilized throughout the country. And so there's a civil war between the pro-Western government and the Cambodian communists, also known as Khmer Rouge. My father was enlisted as a lieutenant colonel. He's no longer a school director anymore. He became a lieutenant colonel, working alongside US military advisors because he was fluent in both French and English. And so in 1975, the Khmer Rouge, the communists, took over Cambodia. And uh, the government soldiers began to lay down their weapons, welcoming the new victors. And because we promised unity, and amnesty. And people would come out of the street to welcome, to celebrate this new arrival of a new government, the communists, in Jubilee. But it did not take very long after that, where within three days after the celebration ended, the government made an announcement that everyone must leave the cities. Everyone. Shop must be closed, uh, money will not be used, school will be closed, the whole city's hospital will be shut down. Everyone must leave the cities to the rural area, uh, to villages and farms where people would be uh, put into work, in a communal work. So the communists come in, the government soldiers, like your father, lay down their weapons, and the communists take over, because there was no way they were gonna win. There was a fight against them. So the communists come in with power, and they clear out the cities. They clear out the like, cities. Like, we're talking small towns or large towns? We're, we're talking Phnom Penh, we're, we're talking everything. The, the millions of people are moving. Yes, simultaneously, all of the cities, 
people must leave the city. Wow. It wouldn't matter where. Uh, this isn't a city of Banambong you look at, but about five hours bus drive uh, south of that is the capital city of Phnom Penh. So the, the people that are in the major city would take longer time, would have to travel further to leave the city to go to the village and rural area. But for Banambong, it's not, we don't have to travel very far. So empty cities. Everywhere. Empty cities, streets completely empty. There's nobody on the street. And so uh, I think about a hospital. It's got a lot of people in there, but they have to leave. So family would have to put them in a makeshift carts, two wheels, and roll them out. People would carry them on a bamboos with a hammock, strung to the bamboos, and two guys, one in front, one in the back, carry those guys out and just march out the city um, to get to the village. Once People got to the village, uh, they began to ask to strip everything off, anything that personal belonging to put in a pile. Now it will belong to the community, belong to everybody. Because um, it's communism. Yes. So men and women uh, begin to be separated very quickly. Uh, husband and wife were separated. Uh, children were separated from parents. And uh, I was placed in a group of about 200 children with a few chaperones. So at that point, you're how old? I was eight years old. Eight years old. Yes. And you walked out of the city with your yes. family. Mm. Yes, eight years old. And uh, you noticed uh, the uh, fashion, uh, the outfits, everything's black. We were told to take all your colorful clothing and dyes in black. Everyone should look the same. No one should be better than the other. We're going to be in equal status. And everything, everyone should have the same thing. No one should have anything more or better than the other. Uh, we were issued out uh, two sets of clothing per year, and one plate and one spoon and a hammock. And that's our only possession that we can take with us anywhere at any time when the government tells us to do it. Hmm. And uh, so we would get out five o'clock in the morning and march about 45 minutes to an hour to the field to work. Uh, no breakfast. So we worked from morning until about noontime because they eliminate all the calendars and clock and watches. You can't tell what time it is during the day. So you pretty much kind of, they tell you, well, kind of the, the shadows right direct under you now. So that's time for lunch. And we, uh, they would give us a bowl of soup pretty much liquid and some grains of rice in there and we would have that and then we would go back to work throughout the day until about an hour before sunset we would march back to our camps. It's more like a concentration camp because no one can go there, we cannot get out. We were there uh, to, uh, they try to re-educate us from our former life in the city, now have to learn to work uh, for the good and benefit of everybody, especially for the Communist Party. Um, so we do that, and then we were told often times that, um, that we all belong to the communists, belong to the state, and to be on the lookout for anyone who deem enemy of the state and will report to the government, and they must be eliminated. Uh, it doesn't matter if he or she is your grandfather or mother or your parents and also told that we cannot possess anything, we cannot hide anything or do anything just for our own personal good. We have to do it for their own community. And if we get caught with anything, by anything, we will be executed. 
We worked during the day, and uh, at night, after about uh, uh, 15 minutes rest, where we uh, wash up quickly and receive another bowl of soup for dinner, and then we would gather in a circle like this one here, and the uh, communists would put this drama, skits in play that would uh, indoctrinate children of the communist ideology and preparing us also to become soldiers one day and that we must, uh, uh, we must sacrifice ourselves, our lives, for the love of communism and to be ready to fight the Vietnamese who's also communist that would want to invade Cambodia. And we did, the communists did. Uh, the Khmer Rouge made an incursion into southern Vietnam and slaughtered massive number of people there. And in retaliation, the Vietnamese invaded Cambodia. And as Vietnam invaded Cambodia, when they come upon camps, uh, concentration camps, they would tell us to return to your city, your hometown, and to look for your family there or just wait there until everybody arrived there and you can reunite with your family. Mm. Now, I skipped a lot, but I gave you a little bit of narrative of what the daily life is like being uh, a child in a concentration camp for that three years and eight months in that camp with no education. So three years, eight months, from eight to nearly 12, nearly 12. you were in the camp. Right, wow. uh, no school, just work. Um, no holidays, we didn't even know what holiday it was, what month it was, just know that kind of, I think it's kind of winter because it's kind of cold, I think it's summer, it's rainy season, that's about it. And so here the Vietnamese coming in, uh, Vietnam invaded Cambodia, and they told us to do that. And uh, so people started marching from camps and camp, different camps, and then we all returned to the city, hometown, to look for uh, loved ones. I went back to uh, a uh, house where my family used to live in, uh, not too far from the train station, and the house was empty, and there's no one there. And I did not wait that I would return to be in the, in the crowd with other people, and I would return here very often to look for my family, but I did not find them. Hmm. Finally, I heard words that uh, they saw my family uh, were living up stream along the rivers, up the river a little bit, along the, along the main road there. So I went there looking for my family. I went several times, and then finally I saw a woman walked from under the stilt house toward me as I was walking on the road. She was walking faster and faster as I continued walking, and I could not recognize my mother. I couldn't recognize her. I, I saw her, but I could not tell who she was. Hmm. So I didn't stop. But she called out my name. That's when I recognized her voice. Hmm. I said, that's my mother. And I stopped, and then we turned, we looked at each other. She walked toward me, I walked toward her, and we embraced each other and wept. Hmm. And then I saw two other kids was running toward my mother, looking at me. I did not recognize them. They did not recognize me. That's my brother, my sister, my mother. It reintroduced us to each other again. Because you were the oldest. These, they would have been younger, so they would have changed more. Yes. And then finally you were able yes. to recognize them. And then because they also came out of a very harsh condition, we were just skin and bone. Yeah. Uh, you cannot really recognize it. Sure. 
you know how you met some people and then it's like, what happened to you? Like, because they changed so, so much, you almost could not recognize them. This is my case. And uh, so I look past my mother, shoulders, try to look, you know, look around her, behind her, look past her to see if my dad, my father would come from the house to greet us, but he never did. So I asked, I said, mother, where is father? She said, she put her arm around my shoulders, like, please, let's come to the house and we'll talk. So as we got uh, to the house and just sat down, my mother began to give me the narrative of what happened to my father. She said that in the night, my father's close friends, almost best friend, that used to have come to our house before the communists took over Cambodia, he used to come to our house, visiting us, telling jokes, ate with us, slept at our house. He became communist, and he turned my father, his closest friends, to the Communist Party. Because when you do that, it shows that you're very loyal to the Communist Party, and you would get promoted to a higher-ranking communist official. Mm. Mm. So my mother said that's the last time she saw him. And my mother said, Son, you are the man of the family now. Your father's not here anymore. We are looking up to you. We're counting on you and your decision, your direction and protection. Lead us and guide us. Mm. We follow. So quickly, at the age of 12, I became a man. I became head of the family. I became the decision man. I became a man that ruled and do everything with an iron fist. Iron fist that came from the news of this gentleman took away my father. It came from the anger, the hatred, the bitterness that are taking seeds and roots in my heart. That one day I want to find him and kill him. He's not just anybody. Of all the people, he was an enemy. He was a close friend of our family that he did that. And so, after a little while, after the Vietnamese invaded Cambodia throughout the entire country, Vietnamese also communists, and we were told that we should not be in the country. It's not safe. So my family and I made a journey through the jungle that was laid with mines and uh, improvised explosive devices that are all in the jungle. You can't really see in the leaves, in the trees, underneath the leaves in the ground. Explosion went off everywhere. Uh, a lot of people didn't make it. They die. Um, you can smell the stench of bodies that were that were uh, were not buried. Left there. They're just left there. Mm -hmm. uh, that were abandoned by family members or people that just had to move on. There's not enough time. You don't have a lot of time. You want to make it out through that jungle before the day is over because mm -hmm. you still have sunlight. That you have a fair chance of making through it. And uh, so I did that, and uh, we were told quickly that follow someone's footprint. That's the safest way to go through the jungle, because somebody's already been stepped on that. Um, so we did that. I was walking in this path in a jungle, and I heard a loud shout that got my attention. It said, stop, there's a mine in front of you. I stopped, and I turned around and looked to see where the voice is coming from. I did not see anyone, but I got off that path and walked around because there's a mine in front of me. 
So my family and I made through the jungle into a refugee camp that was set up along the border between Thailand and Cambodia. It's like this. And it's relatively safe during the day, but it's not very safe during the night. At night, men would come through the camp in military uniform with their rifles and weapons. They would take whatever they want, whoever they want. Uh, they would kill anyone to stand their way. I didn't feel safe. I needed to protect my family, me as well. So I enlisted in a military at the age of 12. Um, called child soldier so if you ever want to know more about child soldier you can talk to me i'll tell you all about it all mm. the excitement and uh, you feel very powerful you belong to a powerful group who arms you with weapons and grenades and rocket launchers that you don't have to aim very much you just point in a certain direction you can blow anything up mm. that you don't want um so we i was there and just about a year it's not safe either. A lot of my buddies just disappeared because we got killed. We didn't know better. We were just kids. We feel uh, invincible, and they gave us tattoos on the mm. arms. We were lining up to get these tattoos that's very uh, evil, satanic at the time, and supposed to protect uh, soldiers, children, child soldiers, from shrapnels and explosions and bombs and bullets and all that. And uh, But... It didn't really work. A lot of my buddies were gone. So we decided to cross another jungle and rivers to into Thailand, into the refugee camp there that was set up by the United Nations. Um, when we got to the camp, uh, just a sense of relief. We'll be, we're in a safer place now. Uh, this, this order, look at the houses all in line, they lined up. Uh, there's sections, there's, there's uh, they call section A, B, C. Uh, everything's like in an orderly manner. Even how we go and get food, water and food, uh, you have to be, we learn to stand in line to get, uh, wait for our turn to get uh, uh, rice or meat or water. And so this is what it looks like. And it was very exciting. For the first time, we felt that we out, out of misery. We, we out of danger. And at this point, you had reunited with your family, yes. not, not off traveling with the other child soldiers. You'd got back with your mom, your brother, and your sister. Yes. Okay. So, so we're together. We're into and then this, Thailand. In Thailand. Carry down camp. Um, so in the refugee camp, uh, people begin to find those, the perpetrator or the murderer of their families, and they took justice in their own hand. They begin to exact revenge the very revenge that my family and I want to do. We would do the same thing, except we couldn't find a guy. If we found a guy, we'd done the same thing. And while this is happening, my mother came and uh, told us about the man that took away our father, that he said, son, you know the man that took away your father? He's in the same refugee camp with us. Hmm. And my brother and I are so delighted to hear that news. Our opportunity is here. We will find him, and we will make him pay for what he did to our family. His family will go through the same thing that we'll go through, and they will understand what we had to go through mm -hmm. without a father. Yeah. And so my brother and I began to plan, plot, uh, 
because you saw that house in a row in the house, section R, they got their own leaders, and so we can't, very, can't hide very well. We have to plan carefully his days in and out, and then so that we can take him out without being caught and be deported back to Cambodia. And so while so I... So you're planning to kill him? Yes. Yes, well, my brother too. Yeah. So we, just my brother and me. We'll, spread around the blame, but well, yeah, your yeah. brother too. You're, you're both going to kill him. We had to team up. If something happened, I just have, all I have to do is just run faster than him. Okay. And so, uh, I'll be safe. But uh, um, so while we were planning all this, uh, churches in America send up missionaries. Missionaries mm. arrive to refugee camp, proclaiming the good news to us. And for the first time, my family and I heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The story of the creator God, creator God. But this creator God has a name, the Lord Jesus Christ, Mm. who spoke everything into existence in Genesis. And then again in John, in the beginning was Jesus Christ. He was with God. He was with God. Everything was made by him and through him. And nothing that is in existence, it's not, made, it's not that came to existence without him. And he came to dwell among men. The same God that is in Genesis 3.15. The only Savior in the world with a name, Jesus Christ, would come to the world as of God's grace because God loves the world so much so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So I heard this and it captivated my heart and my mind and my soul, my soul began to cling on to every word mm. that mm. was in the news, good news the missionary was sharing with us. Mm. So many questions was put to the missionary. The missionary could not answer all the questions that my family and I had. So he gave us a Bible in our language that we could read. At least he thought that I could read. My family could not read. Um, I had two years education. Uh, my third year of school, third grade, I didn't finish it. That's when the communists came and took over and school ended everything. Spent three years, eight, eight months in the concentration camp. No school there. And then in a refugee camp. Bible's in my hand. I struggle to read, but I want to know so much Mm. about this creator God, about the God of heaven and earth. The God that your grandmother alluded to. Yes. A powerful God that was more powerful than all the other gods, but she didn't know his name. And now you knew his name. Yes. Mm. So so how intriguing is that? Yeah. Is this true? That was the question in my mind, is that is this possible? Is everything I'm here, is this true? So I read the scripture. I struggle uh, reading the Bible and the book of John uh, that I love so much. I butchered it and I tortured everybody around me every time I read, this, read the scripture. And all the people would tell me, kid, can you just stop reading that? Because I could not read correctly and I would make up words that I think what it sounds, what it means. I just read the all. <laughs> Finally, gentlemen, just, can you just read it quietly anyway? Just, just whisper to yourself. Don't read it out loud. Well, I tried. 
I try to read it very softly, quietly, but you know, as you, you don't realize it, you, the more you struggle, the louder it gets. So he got louder and louder, and so he could not stand anymore. He said, would you bring the Bible to me, and I'll read to you. Mm. And so he read to me. He also got intrigued. The Holy Spirit of God got attention, his attention. He started reading, and I understood more because he read it the right way. I couldn't read, you know, the way I read it, it's not making any sense at all. Um, so he read. You know, that gentleman that read the scriptures to me, he also became a believer. <laughs> he got saved just from reading the scripture that he couldn't stand me reading. <laughs> and so next time you want to win somebody to the Lord, just read it. Just, just read it. Poorly. In yes. Poorly. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I'll go to the waiting room and somewhere in the doctor's office, just read it until someone says, bring it over, I'll read it to you. And so, uh, you know, just to think about it, hmm. it's like, reality sets in there's one point there's God before everything he made everything but men decided to define their own right and wrong and just departed from God instead of obeying God went to obey Satan but God never gave up on people he pursued them and he sent Jesus Christ now I think about the word sent Jesus has to be willing to, to move. You ever thought about you, you guys move a lot, right? Some of you haven't moved yet, but Jesus, you know, was on a mission. His father had everything picked out, the time and place to send him. 